You are listening to Episode 11 of Ravenwood, a Tanith Fairport adventure written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 24. New Demands. By the time the sun reached the treetops on its way toward night, Megan, Tanith, and the children were all safely settled in the new house. The whole village had a finer understanding of why a careful watch was necessary, but still no better idea about how to deal with the issue. Birchwood could come at them from any direction at any time, and they could only watch and wait for his next move. It came sooner than they expected. Just as the sun disappeared behind the treetops, but before true sunset, a voice rang out. Mapleton! William Mapleton! Come out! The voice cut across the village from the direction of the pike, and doors popped open at the call. Yellow firelight showed silhouettes of heads and shoulders. Thomas popped around the corner of a house and drew an arrow, but held his fire as he saw who, and what, was riding up the path. William boiled out of his house and ran toward the approaching riders, but halted twenty paces back. Tanith watched him from the safety of the house, with Megan by her side. The children sensed something amiss and were, for a mercy, quiet. Little Sandy crawled up the step to peek her head just over the threshold. Andrew Birchwood sat nonchalantly astride his horse. In front of him, in the saddle, sat a very pale and frightened-looking Riley Mapleton. "'Well, good evening, William.' Birchwood pitched his voice to play to the audience. "'I trust you'll stand your ground there and keep your archer in check?' He smiled. It was not a good look for him. "'Riley, are you all right?' William ignored Birchwood for the moment. "'I'm fine, Papa. I'm sorry, but—' Birchwood patted the boy on the shoulder with his left hand. That's enough, Riley. You'll be quite silent now, won't you? That's a good lad. Birchwood flourished the dagger he held in his right and turned back to the father. Now that I have your attention, there's the small matter of... How do we phrase this? He made a show of thinking. Oh, yes, insurance. That's the term. William's face clouded and his fist clenched as he held himself helplessly in check. Extortion, I think, is the term you're struggling with, Birchwood. Oh, come now, William. Extortion is such a nasty word, he shrugged. I'm just a businessman trying to turn a profit. You're an honest man trying to protect what's yours. I can respect that, William. I can. His voice was oily and ingratiating. He patted Riley on the shoulder once more. Young Riley here, for example. It would be tragic should anything happen to him now, wouldn't it? William took a deep breath. What do you want, Birchwood? State your claim. Oh, I'm not a greedy man, William. I think a nice little operation like this should be able to afford, say, 500 golds. Insurance, you understand, to make sure that nothing unfortunate happens. 500 golds? William practically choked. And you seriously believe we have 500 golds here? Birchwood made a small tisk sound with his lips. Oh, don't play coy, William. Of course you have it. I've seen the wagon carrying your cargo into town. I've seen your storehouse. I've seen your silver mine. Tanith saw the look on William's face go blank for a moment before what Birchwood had said fully registered. My silver mine? He paused, staring at the man. Are you mad? You think we have a silver mine? Birchwood shook his head. Come, come, William. I said don't play coy. Lives are at stake here. Young lives... His left hand rested heavily on the boy's shoulder. It's a clay quarry, Birchwood. Clay, like you make bricks from. Birchwood shook his head. I've been there. I've seen it, William. 
His voice wasn't so pleasant now. Your men up there diligently scraping it all up, putting it in barrels. You can't tell me that you're all out here grubbing up clay, the same clay you can get from any river bank within ten miles of the city. He shook his head. No, William, I'm not that gullible. William sat heavily on the grass, his knees up and leaning back on his hands. You've got to be joking, Birchwood. Surely you can't be that foolish. His voice was low, but it carried the tone of disbelief clearly through the evening air. Birchwood's brow furrowed. Don't play that game with me, Mr. Mapleton. Why would anybody come way out here to dig clay? You're a rich man's son. All these people have connections in the city. You expect me to believe that you all came out here to live close to nature and dig up clay? He took a deep breath and his countenance returned to the more genial one he rode in with. Please, William, how can you expect me to believe that? William closed his eyes and dropped his head back to stare at the darkening sky. Because, my fine, foppish fool, were all the youngest sons and castoffs of the rich and powerful back in the city. He raised his head and leveled his gaze at the man. Yes, Mapleton is my father, but I've got four brothers who are closer to money than I am, and you know that to be true as well. You lived in Overton long enough to learn that much, and as much as you preyed on our people, it must have taught you a thing or two about my father and my family. For the first time, Birchwood looked uncertain. And we didn't come out here to dig clay. We came out here to start a new town, a town where we might have some of the opportunities that were denied in the city, a place we can call ours, not something cast off or passed down by our parents. His eyes bored into Birchwood. The clay is how we raise the cash we need to buy the goods we can't produce yet. It's clay, just clay. It's a particularly fine clay. Someday we'll have a kiln here, perhaps, and start manufacturing with that clay. But by the beard of the all-father, Birchwood, what we take out of the ground up there is clay. Do you swear on the life of your eldest son, fool? Birchwood fairly spit the rejoinder. The two men behind him were looking less certain for the first time since they rode into town. I can only tell you the truth, Birchwood. It's clay. There's another small problem with your plan. We don't keep any cash here. Birchwood frowned. What do you mean you don't keep any cash? William sat up and held out his hands to either side. Do you see any shops, pubs, taverns, any place where having cash could be any use out here? He uncoiled from the ground and stood in front of the horse. Do you think perhaps we're buying and selling biscuits from each other? That I'm selling the firewood I chopped to the highest bidder, maybe? Oh, come, come, William, adjust as adjust, but I have your son here. Are you sure you want to play these games? Birchwood's men were looking back and forth between themselves, but Birchwood wasn't paying attention to them. His attention was focused on the man in front of him. Birchwood, I swear to you on the life of my son, we send the wagon loaded, we sell the clay, and it's just clay, to the works in Overton. We have accountants and factors in town who keep our money, manage our accounts, and pay our bills. When the wagon comes back, he'll have no money, just the goods we need to get through the winter. I could pay you in hundred weights of flour, but I doubt if there's more than ten silvers cash money here in the village, if you want to shake out all the purses and put the money in a pile. He looked at Birchwood and held out his hands to either side in a gesture of helplessness. We have no money. We have no need for it out here. Birchwood shook his head. Well, I must say, William, this is a most amusing tale you spin, but I don't think you realize the gravity. If you have no money, then bad things will happen to you and to yours, like this delightful lad here. He clapped the boy on the shoulder one more time. The fires you had today are only a sample. His voice was cold. I suggest you find some money, and find it quickly. 
before somebody you care for gets hurt. You can't get blood out of a stone, Birchwood. I know that, William. I get blood out of people who do not pay. It would behoove you to remember that little fact. I'll give you a few days to think about it, but I will be back. And in the meantime, you should try to find a better story to tell, one with a little more jingle in it. He made a hand signal, and his riders turned and rode back to the pike. Birchwood himself backed his horse slowly away, keeping the boy between Thomas's arrow and himself. My boy, Birchwood, what about my boy? Birchwood only smiled and continued to back his mount. Thomas started to follow, but Birchwood held a knife to Riley's neck. You might consider standing where you are, Archer. Arrows make me nervous, and when I get nervous, I get twitchy. He made a little jump with his face and arm when he said the word twitchy, and the knife at Riley's throat twitched too, but it didn't draw blood. Thomas subsided and released the draw on his bow, pointing the arrow to the ground. Birchwood smiled and backed his horse to the pike. When he was out of bow shot, he unceremoniously dumped the boy onto the ground and healed his horse into a gallop, heading south down the pike with his two bravos. Riley scrambled to his feet before his father could reach him, picked up a rock and threw it after the riders. Boyish rage and frustration were writ large on his face and his aim was true, but his power too slight and the stone fell to earth only a few feet away. William reached the boy at a run and scooped him up in his arms before turning to race back to the safety of the house. Tanith could see they were both crying and clinging to each other as William passed them, heading for home and meeting Amber coming down. Tanith closed the door on the reunion and turned to a wide-eyed Megan. What does it mean, Mom? Tanith shook her head. Our Mr. Birchwood just got a fast introduction to life in our little village of Ravenwood. Yes, but what will he do? Tanith shook her head. I'm not sure. William had a good idea to keep all your money in town where it can be kept safe and used where it'll do the most good, but I don't know if Andrew Birchwood believes him. They crossed to the hearth and Megan ran a spoon around in the soup hanging over the fire. Why wouldn't he believe William, Mum? William's never lied to him. Tanith took her seat beside the fire as the three children crept closer to hear the adults talking about adult things, eyes shining bright in the failing light of evening. Well, I suspect it's common for people to claim they have no money. Villages along the pike like this generally don't have much in the way of cash income, just like here. They barter and share. It makes it difficult for people like Birchwood to force them to pay for protection. Megan nodded. You can't give what you don't have. Exactly, my dear. So I suspect that Mr. Birchwood has heard it before, and he doesn't believe it here in particular because he knows William's father is rich. Did he really think the clay quarry is a silver mine? Apparently. He just can't imagine that a rich man's son like William would be out here in the woods digging up clay. I'm not sure I do, and I've been here to see it. It's clay. Megan made the announcement very clearly. It's good clay, but it's clay. Do you know a lot about clay? Megan grinned and giggled a little. Yes, Mum. My da owns the Overton Brickworks, and my uncle owns Overton Pottery. I was throwing pots before I was ten winters old. She held up her mug. This is pottery from Uncle Ezra's factory. He sells it to us cheap. Tanith blinked in disbelief. So this really is good clay. Megan nodded soberly. It surely is, Mum. She looked down for a moment and then leaned in to speak quietly. Pound for pound, it's worth more than silver ore, at least the ore they get around here. She grinned at the older woman. It has trace minerals that give it a nice color and texture. Tanith giggled a little on her own. It's just clay, but it's worth more than silver. Oh, yes, Mum, but only to people who know what it is and what to do with it. Tanith shook her head in disbelief. 
No wonder William keeps all the money in town. You couldn't afford a militia big enough to guard it out here. Megan smiled happily. That's why the whole village is set up the way it is. We don't have any money here, but we're slowly getting rich in town. And like William said, there's no place to spend it out here. Tanith grimaced. But that still doesn't answer the question of what to do about Birchwood and his bully boys. She glanced at Megan. I don't suppose we can turn them into the king's own. If we could get their attention, maybe, Mum. Yes, I can see where that might be a problem. Megan turned to the kids. All right, enough entertainment for one night, my wee cabbages. Shall we have some soup and go to bed? They lined up politely, got soup and bread, and settled down to eat with a minimum of muss and fuss. Tanith marveled at how well Megan was bearing up under the ordeal of being kidnapped, dragged through the forest, burned out of her home, and then moving her household, what parts of it survived the fire, all in the same day. With dinner over and the children tucked into snug beds beside the hearth, Megan sat by the fire with the mending on her lap while the children nodded off in the warm dimness of the snug cottage. As the last of the little ones drifted off, Tanith realized that Megan was sitting very still and hadn't moved needle or thread for several minutes. She glanced over and saw the tears glistening on the young woman's face in the flickering light of the fire. Oh, my poor dear. Megan shook once in a muffled sob. Tanith crossed to her and cradled her in her arms. There, there, my dear. There, there. She held and rocked her as if she were a child herself, letting her sob silently against her and making sure the children didn't see by keeping her body between mother and child. She held her, stroked her hair until the sobs passed finally, leaving Megan weak, shaken, and limp in Tanith's lap. Tanith helped the younger woman into her bedroll and tucked her in before banking the fire and settling on her own bedroll for the night. Chapter 25 Last Straw Tanith sat on her bedroll, gazing into the golden depths of the banked coals and pondering. The day had been filled with terror. She knew they'd gotten off easily. Birchwood would not stop until he was forced to. Of that, she was certain. She had seen enough of his type over the course of her life. By rights, it should be a matter of having the king's own deal with him, but petty banditry, especially on the edges of the kingdom, was practically a way of life. By the time the king's own could deal with it, the village could be destroyed. Mother, what do we do? The words were a whispered prayer, but the only answer was the sound of night winds sighing across the top of the chimney. The sound drew a sigh from Tanith as well, and she settled into her bedroll. Her rest was fitful. Each sound in the night, each shift in the wind, half woke her. The dreams, as much as she could remember, were nonsensical, images of bears tearing open logs to eat the larvae within, one long disturbing passage of a tree falling in the forest and rotting away, eaten by bugs filled with fungus, and others she would never remember at all, until just before dawn she dreamed of a single drop of blood. It fell through a crystalline blue sky, a sphere of crimson shimmering in the light, falling, 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 until it splattered into a darkened starburst on a hearthstone. The red wetness faded to black as the stone drank in the moisture, leaving only the star-shaped stain on the rock. A single sharp raven's caw brought her awake, eyes searching the dimness as the images of her dreams faded in the gray light of morning. The soft sound of sleeping children blended with the sound of the wind in the chimney. Her belt knife dug into her side where her habit placed it in her bedroll each night. She dressed in her bulky trousers and strapped on her belt knife. It took but a few minutes to stoke up the fire and fill the kettle from the covered bucket. By the time she was done, Megan stirred in her bedroll and blinked slowly up from slumber. 
Tannis smiled and nodded to the younger woman, who smiled back and gave a small wave in return. Her eyes closed again, and Tanith watched her drowse off once more in the space of three breaths. She huffed a silent laugh, and with a shake of her head went to the door and opened it a crack to peep out. The sun was still below the treetops to the east, but lit the sky with a clear pale light. The gravel path that served the village's road stood whitely against the dark wet grass. A skirl of cold morning air sneaked in through the crack and washed over her face, drying the night's moisture from her skin. She filled her lungs with the cool freshness of a new day. She slipped out and walked to the main path, looking for the guard and spotting William and Carl walking between the houses. They saw her and waved. The cool morning air reminded her that she needed to use the privy, and she walked quickly. She dealt with the privy in short order and met William and Carl on the way back to the house. Good morning, Mum. William looked haggard, and even Carl was looking a bit worse for wear. Good morning, William. Good morning, Carl. How are you doing this morning? Carl smiled wanly. Morning, Mum. I'm ready for my bed, truth be told. William shrugged. I'm okay, Mum. How are things in your house? Do the kids settle okay? She shrugged in return. Kids are fine, I think. Megan may take a little longer to recover. William grimaced. I was afraid of that. Any problems overnight? Tanith remembered the sobbing, shuddering woman that she'd rocked the night before. No, no problems. She just needs time. Carl spat on the grass. We need to deal with this guy. We can't go on like this. Now, Carl, we've been talking about this all night long. William tried to put a halt on the conversation. Carl shook his head. Don't you now Carl me, William Mapleton. You know as well as I do that we're just not set up for this. Towns have walls and guards to guard them. We're a collection of huts, spread out and open. He paused for breath before continuing. You saw that last night. If he can grab Riley. William nodded, defeated. It might have been any of them. Riley was in the wrong place at the wrong time and by himself. William sighed and looked at Tanith. They were playing hide-and-seek before bed. He went to hide, and before we knew he was gone, Birchwood brought him back. He shuddered and closed his eyes. Anything could have happened. His voice was husky and raw. He is right, you know. Tanith's voice was soft and low, and she nodded to Carl. William nodded without looking up. I know. But what can we do about it? He paused and took a deep breath. He looked up and indicated the village around him with a sweep of his head. We can't build a wall around this. It's too spread out. We don't have the manpower or the money to hire a full-time guard. Tanith and Carl followed his gaze around the village. Tanith nodded slowly. I was in the Southlands a few winters ago. Land there is flat and open and mostly grassy. Hot as blazes in the summer. Winter blows through for a month or so, but it's bitter cold. She thought back to her winter with Mother Ashbourne. The King's Own was spread thin down that way, too, and it's right on the border with Barrymore. Every so often the towns got raided. William looked incensed. We have treaties with Barrymore. That's not supposed to happen. Indeed we do, and it's not supposed to, but... She shrugged. Carl finished her thought. The King's Own is spread too thin. Tanith nodded sadly. The point is they had to deal with it. And I think we'll need to deal with it, too. Not just Birchwood, but the next band of buggers as well. William objected. I thought that's what the inn was about. It is, Tanith agreed and pointed to Carl with her thumb. But he's got the right of it, too. We need to deal with Birchwood, and we're too vulnerable to him because we're all spread out. How do they deal with that in the Southlands, Mum? Carl searched her face anxiously. They fort up. William nodded and shrugged all at once. Well, sure, but we don't have a fort. 
The frustration was showing in his voice. When we can build the inn, we can make it defensible, but we don't have the inn, and we can't build it so long as we have to keep looking over our shoulders for Birchwood and his bravos. Yes, the inn will help, but you've got a fort now. Tennis' voice carried conviction and cut through his objections. The barn. Both men stopped and stared at her. The barn? William's voice almost cracked from surprise, but Carl's face took on a thoughtful expression. She pressed on. The barn. It's big enough. That's where most of the village's supplies are. It's where the animals are, or at least most of them. The workroom even has a hearth for cooking. She paused to consider. The only thing it doesn't have is a well. The two men looked at each other. Carl turned back to her. What good will being in the barn do us, Mom? They can still burn us out, one house at a time. Tannis shrugged. Yes, they can, but houses can be rebuilt. She looked pointedly at William. Children can't be. If we can keep Birchwood from killing anybody, or stealing the supplies we need for the winter, then there's nothing he can really do except be a boil on our backsides. Sooner or later, he'll realize that and move on. William frowned and thought and pinched his lips together between thumb and forefinger. Carr looked around the village as if measuring it with his eyes. After a few moments, both men were nodding. Carl spoke first. With everybody in one space, garden would be a lot easier and we'd have a smaller perimeter to watch. William agreed. We'll be packed in cheek by jowl for a while, but splitting the work of feeding everybody and watching the kids. More eyes means less opportunities for Birchwood. He sighed and turned to look at the barn back in the trees. Well, we stayed there the first winter. Carl looked shocked. Why would we have to spend the winter there? Birchwood will be gone soon enough once he realizes he can get at us and we're not going to pay. William glanced at Tana through side before she spoke. Because he'll probably be so angry that he'll torch the houses out of spite. Carl got very still and turned to look at the village with a slow sweep of his head before looking back at Tanith and then at William. Well, if we muck out the stalls good and lay down fresh straw, we can put bedrolls there until Frank and the boys get back. William nodded his agreement. And when they get back, we'll have more hands to help the rebuilding. Three stood and looked at each other for a few more moments, and the sun tipped up over the trees across the pike. William nodded to Carl. Help me get Bester in harness. We'll use the ox cart to move everybody up to the barn. Carl nodded. William turned to Tanith. You just moved in, so I hate to have you move again, but... His voice petered out. We've not had much time to get settled yet, Tanith finished for him. He shrugged apologetically, and she grinned. I'll go see if Megan and the kids are up. They watched to make sure she arrived safely before turning toward the barn. She slipped into the house and four pair of eyes turned to look at her. Good morning, everybody. I'm glad to see you all up. We're going to do something different today. Sandy perked up at that. Really, Mom? What's that? Something fun? Tannis shrugged. Well, I don't know if fun is the word I'd use, but we'll all sleep better at night, I think. Megan's eyebrows shot up. What are we going to do today, Mom? Move. Move? We just moved in. We have to move out? Tanith crossed to the hearth and helped herself to a cup of tea before settling in the circle of children. Megan watched her from the hearth. Yes, well, we have this problem with the bad men. She addressed her comments to the kids, but she was talking to Megan. Sandy sat enraptured by the older woman, sitting on the hearthstone with her. They might have hurt Riley yesterday, and we were all trying to be so very careful in everything. Sandy's voice chirped in the morning stillness. Yes, Mom, but they didn't. They gave him back. Tanith nodded and patted the child comfortingly. Yes, they did, and we're all very glad. 
She spared a glance for Megan, who knew exactly what she was getting at. But it taught us a very valuable lesson, and we should pay attention to lessons like that. Sandy nodded sagely. Lessons are good. What lesson did we learn, Mom? She smiled at the earnest young girl. We learned that no matter how hard we try to watch, we're spread out too much to be able to see everything we need to in order to stay safe. Sandy nodded, and Tanith looked around at the other small faces with a smile. So, we learned that we need to get people closer together so we can look out for each other better. Sandy sat up. Well, that makes sense, Mom. A frown crossed her face. But where? We're going to go move in with Bester. The smallest boy's eyes went suddenly round. In his stall? He appeared to be totally aghast. He'll poop on us. Tanith laughed, and even Megan giggled a bit. No, lovey, just in the barn. Bester will keep his stall. She looked up at Megan, although we may be spreading bedrolls in the horses' stalls for a while. The other boy, not to be outdone, tried his best to catch up. In the poop? Megan barked a laugh. Boys, that's enough with the poop. We'll clean the stalls and they'll be very nice and comfy. She sighed in exasperation before looking back at Tanith with a shrug. Boys, was all the explanation she offered. Tanith smiled back. I have one myself. Megan looked startled. You have a boy, Mum? Well, he left home many, many winters ago and joined the king's own. She glanced at the small round faces looking up at her and paused. So, are we ready for something new today? Sandy snorted. Moving is what we did yesterday. Tanith nodded her agreement. Yes, well, but today you get to move into the barn. The little one's eyes got round as a new thought occurred to him. Will we get to poop in the straw like Bester? Anthony! Megan all but shrieked in her embarrassment. This is not appropriate conversation for breakfast. But, Ma, we're moving to the barn. Anthony, hush now. Megan tried to look stern, but her voice cracked from the strain, and she had to hide her face in her hands to stifle the laughter as the whole group dissolved into giggles. When the fit of jocularity had run its course, they started picking up the remains of breakfast and, rather than putting things out, started packing them away. As they finished tidying up and began looking around for what to do next, Tanith heard the crunch of wheels on gravel and William's low voice talking to the ox. She crossed to the front door, flung it open, and waved to Carl and William as they backed the ox cart up to the door. William stuck his head into the opening. Good morning, everyone. You're the first on a long list. Are you ready? The kids danced around in excitement and started a sing-song chant of poopin' in straw, poopin' in the straw, poopin' in the straw. Megan let out a shriek. Anthony! The children collapsed into giggling puddles, and Carl joined William at the door to see what the commotion is about. William looked at Tanith. Fun morning so far? She nodded with a rueful grin. So far, it should be more fun later. Carl looked on skeptically. Behind her, she heard a small boy's voice ask very quietly, Well, will we? Chapter 26 Shadows in the Dark The sun worked up over the trees and into the morning sky. Bester stood patiently as the cart was loaded, dragged it up to the barn, and stood again as it was unloaded with each household's goods in turn. Tanith and Megan were the first to move into the barn. The large box stalls were cramped compared to a full household, but they were more than large enough for bedrolls. The stalls themselves needed little cleaning. Frank kept his team in exceptional condition, and William had already prepared the stalls for Frank's return the next full moon. 
a few extra forks full of straw, and the bedrolls lay flat and smooth around the sides of the stall, leaving the middle of the floor open. Nobody needed to step over or on anybody else getting into or out of the bedrolls. The single quarryman, Carl, Kurt, and Matthew, helped everybody get settled. Carl and Matthew took Anthony out behind the workroom, and they dug a new privy just outside the back door. By mid-afternoon, they'd set up a respectable privy, complete with house, seat, and, at Anthony's insistence, a lining of straw. William looked it over and nodded approvingly. Nice job, Anthony. He winked at the quarrymen, and they all went back to moving the village to safety. Thomas and Jakey spent the day walking the perimeter of the village, watching the woods and keeping an eye on things. During the early stages of the move, the children gathered in the barn and parents counted them twice before they placed a much-chastened Riley in charge of keeping track of all of them. The children played in the large box stall across from Bester's, and every adult in the barn made sure they all stayed in it. Riley soon organized a game involving much posturing and fighting of bandits. It shocked Tanith to find that at least two of the little girls had picked up sticks and held them like walking staffs. Amber saw her noticed and pursed her lips in amusement. You have had quite an effect on our lives, Mum. She lowered her eyes, embarrassed. We're very grateful. Tanith made a gruff-sounding growl, but hugged the younger woman briefly before clearing the way for Bester and the cart, backing in with the next load of household goods. At midday, Amber, Tanith, and Sadie fired up the hearth in the workroom and pulled a large kettle out of stores. They set to work making a kettle of soup with items from the storeroom. As more families joined the group, more hands turned to the process of keeping the company fed and happy. They even built long tables down the middle of the spacious workroom by spanning sawhorses with planks, and sawed logs propped more planks up as benches down either side. Things got a little tight as more households came into the barn, and it became clear that the barn didn't contain enough stalls for everybody to have one. The three single quarrymen moved their bedrolls up to the hayloft, which left just enough room for the households with married couples to each have one. Bethany, whose husband Ethan was on the road with Frank, shyly moved her bedroll in with Tanith, Megan, and the children. Sadie and Charlotte spent the afternoon making bread, and the aromas wafted through the barn, mingling with the scent of straw and animal in a way that touched something in Tanith's heart. An oversized kettle of boiling water kept teapots brewing all through the day. Soup simmered and added a savory undercurrent to the aromas of yeasty bread and musky tea. As each household moved in, the atmosphere became less grim and more festive. The workroom along the back of the barn, with its hearth and long table, became the central gathering spot and hub of activity. As the sun slipped behind the tops of the trees to the west, Tanis stood in the open barn doors with Thomas and watched William and Bester make the last trip from the village. With the last of the houses moved, William put Bester in his stall and gave him an extra scoop of grain and fresh water as a reward for a tedious job well done. Thomas swung the big barn doors closed and dropped the bar into place to keep them closed before telling off the three first shift guards. With a grin and a final pat on Bester's flank, he led the way to the workroom with Thomas and Tanith trailing behind. Amber waved Tanith to a place of honor near the hearth. And if the night outside was chilly, the full population of the village, along with a roaring fire in the large hearth, served to raise the temperature in the room to something approaching summertime levels. She saw William's eyes rove around the room, counting noses and making sure everybody was there except for the three men he knew were on lookout duty. Tanis saw his shoulders relax a bit as he realized that the day was finally over. She smiled and toasted him with her mug of tea. Excellent job getting everybody moved, William. He nodded his head in acknowledgement. Thank you, Mum. Bester did all the hard work, but everybody here deserves congratulations on a job well done. As he and Tanith had begun speaking, the room quieted down until everybody could hear him clearly. 
He raised his mug of tea in the general direction of the room. So, congratulations, everybody. The gathering throng met his announcement with much laughter and pounding of the table. Tanith thought he looked tired as he settled back into his chair and watched Amber at the hearth, but that thought was interrupted as Amber turned to her, ladle in hand. Mom, if you'd care to bless the house, I'll get this soup served to a bunch of hungry people. Tanith snorted a little laugh. I don't know when I've done more blessing in all my life. She turned to William, but played to the room. I just got the last house blessed, and you made me move. You're not going to make me move again in the morning, are you? They all laughed, and even William smiled at the jab. No, Mum. Not unless you're able to bless that rascal Birchwood into leaving us alone. His voice was jesting, but his eyes were pleading. She could see and share his pain. In all likelihood, the barn would be the last building standing by morning, and it threatened to be a long winter. The room grew still as Tana settled her mug on the mantelboard and stood up from her chair. She lifted her head to remember where the cardinal directions lay and stepped to the center of the hearthstone where everybody could see her and where she had room to move about a bit. The large room seemed almost crowded with so many of the villagers in it. She thought, briefly, about Frank and the boys out on the road and sent them a quiet prayer of support, even as she closed her eyes and gathered herself to make an offering to the All-Mother in the name of the village. She turned to face the north and raised her arms in supplication. I call upon the guardian of the north, bones of the earth, to give us the strength we need to face this challenge that lays before us. A quarter turned to her right, and she raised her seamed face to the east. I call upon the guardian of the east, breath of the earth, to fill our lungs with breath, to sing the praises of the All-Mother and the All-Father in this our time of adversity. Another quarter turned to face south. I call upon the guardian of the south, spirit of the earth, to give us the will and the passion to see our trials through to the end. Another turn faced her to the west. I call upon the guardian of the west, blood of the earth, to give us the flexibility of water, to flow where we can and to nourish as we flow. She turned once more to face the north and closed her circle. I beg the blessings and the protection of the guardians in this place and the people gathered in it. I ask in the name of the All-Father and the All-Mother, so mote it be. She lowered her arms and stepped off the hearthstone to resume her seat without looking up. The room was silent except for the crackling of the fire and the wind through the eaves of the barn. No one spoke. No foot stirred. No stool scraped. Tanith felt her eyes on her, but also felt very weak in her knees. The heat of the room and the tension of the day conspired against her, and she was glad she was seated. She reached for a mug and wet her lips with a sip of tea before looking down the long table. Slowly she came back to herself, and even in the heat of the fire behind her, began to recover from whatever had caused the odd dizziness. All the faces were looking back at her silently. What? She smiled gently. Was I supposed to juggle eggs or something? The unseen string in the room snapped, and life resumed with laughter. Amber, Sadie, and Charlotte started dishing up the food with slabs of fresh bread and baskets passed down the length of the table, followed by bowls of the rich stew until everybody had bread and bowl. Bethany and Megan had pots of tea and jugs of fresh water for drink, and in a matter of relatively few minutes everyone was served and seated. The noise in the room was concentrated on spoons and bowls for several minutes, and some of the more adventurous and hungry came back to the hearth for another ladleful. William sat at one side of the table and Tana sat on the other while Amber sat next to her husband and Sadie beside Tanith. From there, the villagers stretched down the long boards until the level dropped to the children at the end, where a good deal of happy chatter and giggling was boiling up. 
In spite of the last few days, the children were seeing the barn as a grand lark and an opportunity to play. Tannis smiled inwardly. To them it probably was. William hunched over his bowl and ate methodically, almost mechanically. Tanith watched Amber watch him with concern on her face. After his jovial manner earlier, the change was starkly apparent. As the meal wore on, conversation started quietly up and down the table. Sadie spoke softly. Do you think they saw? William glanced up at her and nodded. Almost certainly. We may not have seen them, but it wouldn't have taken much of a scout to have watched us moving. Sadie nodded her understanding. So now we wait? William sighed and nodded again. Unfortunately, yes. But we're in a better position to wait him out now. He looked at his wife beside him as she took his arm and patted it encouragingly. He gave her a small smile in return. I don't think we'll have all that long to wait, really. He turned back to Sadie. I suspect he'll be back tonight. Tomorrow at the latest. Then what? Sadie looked concerned. William shrugged. Then we see. The dinner hour eased along and the company found comfort in being together. As bellies filled and bowls emptied, a pot of water was put on to heat for washing up. Amber stood back and directed the cleanup operation. Sadie grinned at her. Practicing up for when the inn is built. They all laughed together. Unless you'd like to take over for me, Amber's reply was delivered with a flick of a towel and a broad grin. Sadie dodged the towel and threw in a grin of her own. Not me. I got my own cares to worry about. Don't need that. They laughed some more, and soon the pile of dirty crockery was transformed into a stack of gleaming dishes on the mantelboard, ready for morning's breakfast. Many hands made the work go smoothly. With cleanup done, they extinguished the extra lanterns and bundled already drowsing children off to bedrolls in the chilling barn. They giggled and shivered for a bit as they found their spots, but as they piled together like puppies in a basket, the warmth of their small bodies under wool and straw soon lulled them into dreams. William left one lamp lit, but turned the wick very low. Most of the adults took to their bedrolls as well. Tanith followed Megan and the children out, and Bethany followed along so they were able to close the gate on their stall. William and children alike piled their bedrolls close. The sweet-smelling straw and the musky animal scent swirled in Tanith's nose, and she remembered the strange dream of a single drop of blood as she fell off the edge of awareness and down into the well of sleep. The raven sat hunched in the top of a fir, Heavy boughs protected her from the bite of the wind. She watched the shadows slipping through the moonlight on the field below. They moved cautiously through the open ground, the silver of the moon behind them, and casting long snaking shapes of black ahead of them. Four men, one walking oddly, one striding as if he owned the land and all he surveyed. She didn't like being awake in the cold dark, but these men disturbed her slumber. She croaked hoarsely, and the night wind swept the soft sound away in the silver dark. The men slipped between the houses and flickered in and out of sight as they moved through the shadows. She shifted her weight on the limb and huddled in the boughs, watching as they came to the end of the houses and considered the two tracks, one to the barn, one to the digging in the ground. They stood in the shadows of the last house, the burnt one, its smoky stench still riding the winds, and huddled against the wind protected from view. She watched patiently, waiting for them to move. Perhaps there would be food. Bright metal flashed as they drew steel. They slipped from shadow to shadow and disappeared into the woods, heading for the barn. She opened her mouth but only managed a soft croak that was swept away in the night's wind.
Thanks for listening to Ravenwood, a Tanith Fairport adventure. Music is The Hill, composed and produced by Ivan Chu. Find this and other works by Ivan Chu at www.archive.org. You can learn more about the composer and his works by visiting his blog at myrightbrain.wordpress.com. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution No Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. License. For more information on Tanith Fairport and stories from the Lamas Wood, visit www.lamaswood.com.